1: Everybody, this is Phil Town.
0: And this is Danielle Town.
1: And welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are figuring out how to invest like the best investors in the world, most importantly, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is that this podcast is dedicated to the idea, to the really revolutionary idea, to the completely unaccepted idea by the mainstream, by academia, by Ivy League, that it is possible for an ordinary person of ordinary intelligence to invest and have low risk and high returns. That's what we're doing. (laughs) And people are out there right now going, well, that's not one of the things I get to choose when I talk to my financial advisor. They give me choices between low risk, low returns, and high risk, high return, potentially. And even though modern portfolio theory, which is designed to which is designing all of these tests, says that you can't beat the market no matter what you do. So we sort of disagree with that. And Buffett is living proof and Munger is. And so are hundreds and hundreds of other people who are telling us that they're doing well by waiting patiently and finding a few industries that they really understand, that they like, and, you know, burritos or something. And they're buying stuff in those industries And they're increasing their sort of joy of life.
0: Yeah. Don't you think?
1: Yeah, I think with understanding
0: being the key part of that and with increasing the joy of life being the key part of that. It's funny, I was thinking back today to our very first episode, which I haven't listened to in a really long time, so I actually don't know exactly what we talked about. But I remember sitting there, together and you said something about Warren Buffett and I just sort of thought like I sort of know who that is but I don't really know who that is like I knew that he was somebody who was wealthy and and I figured had done pretty well in investing and that was everything I knew and so it's been a rather crazy education on who Buffett is. And I had, I had never even heard of Charlie Munger. That was a completely unknown person to me. Um, but Buffett has, as kind of an investing guru has led this process in a, in absentia, but in a very real way. And it was his birthday on Friday. His birthday is August 30th and he was 89 years old on Friday. So we want to dedicate this episode to him and just give him thanks for everything that he's taught, as you just said, dad, to, uh, to teach that it is possible for, I mean, he's not an ordinary person. He's insanely intelligent prodigy in investing, but to show that it can be done simply, even if it's not
1: easy. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty... It's a pretty extraordinary life that he's lived. I mean, no question becoming the wealthiest person in the world is from starting with nothing, starting with a hundred dollars. That's, that's just crazy all by itself that anybody could, could do that. I mean, we think of wealthy people as having been born to it. And, um, it turns out actually weirdly that wealth doesn't stick around. It moves like it flows like water. What does Um, that mean? It means it doesn't stay in your family very well. The history of wealth is that generational wealth is rare. Um, it hmm. turns out that in a capitalistic system, if if you don't know how to handle money, if you don't know how to invest money, um, the fact that your forefathers made a lot of money certainly gave you enormous advantages over the rest of us. But those advantages often, almost normally don't accrue to the next generation. They have the advantages of money and education and everything at their feet. And yet the result is often that the next generation starts to lose the money that was built by the the first generation. And mm-hmm. the sort of the, the, the old uh, saying is that the first generation makes it, the second generation loses it. And the third generation makes it back <laughs> um, is probably... Uh, not that even not even that is not that uh, that accurate the once it gets lost it doesn't get made back it's really amazing how wealth flows in in the united states and in other countries countries where aristocracy is not given um, a permanent seat at the table and it's it's you know obviously there are wealthy families in america and they have advantages but you look over a hundred years ago and you see where people were that had the money and those families aren't the ones that have the money today. Uh, There's a couple of exceptions, but mostly they don't. Okay. Same, same thing with companies, companies that started a hundred years ago. There's very, very few that are in existence today. When you think about the advantages an existing company has in its position in the marketplace with the cash flow that it has in terms of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, and yet they get knocked out by some smaller company. It's really amazing. Capitalism is so, Amazing. And in a, in a way, you know, the, the opponents of capitalism think it's, you know, a, a brutal system that, um, that so doesn't Buffett appreciate benefited labor or
0: did not benefit
1: Buffett. Well, Buffett's family didn't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. so he wasn't, you know, ex- he wasn't getting generational wealth. What, what he had was, um, a high IQ that helps if you're starting from zero, he had a father who was in the business as a stockbroker, mm-hmm. um, but not a notably great investor, and certainly not somebody that made anything other than a middle class income. Mm-hmm. Um, his father did well; obviously, he was a he was a successful stockbroker, and he was a successful uh, representative to the House of Representatives for a couple of terms. Um, and and so, you know, clearly Warren had advantages that let's say I didn't have, you know, growing up my, my family, your, your grandparents didn't have that kind of beginning place for me to start. Um, yeah, I mean, Buffett he wasn't very much rich.
0: was a, a kid who had a lot of advantages, but, but not, you know, he wasn't a Rockefeller. Like he didn't come from bazillions.
1: No, he didn't come from millions. He came actually from a home that was a mess. So yeah, some advantages and then some serious disadvantages. Um, He's had real inner in in his family. His his family's had serious problems, and there's old stories about like there's a biography of Warren Buffett called um, The Snowball, mm-hmm. where it talks about how tough his childhood actually was, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the impact of that on all of us is is enormous, obviously, and so. You know, we we look at somebody's life from outside and we think, wow, you know, they had all these advantages. And sometimes they didn't really. And and in this case, I I think Buffett had the advantage of being very, very bright and having an aptitude for investing early on.
0: Definitely. You
1: know, he, he 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 laughs that if, you know, if he were born a million years ago, he would have been eaten by the first tiger that came along. <laughs> he had no athletic ability whatsoever. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. But he was smart.
0: He's really really smart uh, to the point of being um like off the charts kind of like not having a lot of social skills but having a lot of uh, not having a lot of emotional intelligence but having a lot of what's the other kind of intelligence just like the other kind. IQ. IQ I don't but know.
1: It, in like logical intelligence. Like logical intelligence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Um so yeah, and he you know fully admits that and it's very formative in his early years you're exactly right and yet the extraordinary thing about him i think is that he's created this world in which he is the great communicator to millions about investing simply and and in companies that you understand like that's who would have ever thought that that kid the guy who has trouble talking to people at a party would become this guy who draws millions to to hear him speak on the internet and and thousands in person i mean it's it's you would never predict that it's really amazing what he's created and it's not because of his investing i think like there are other great investors he's Uh, maybe the greatest in the world, but that's not why people come. It's because he's so good at communicating about it. And he can tell simple stories that explain what he's doing and why he's doing it. And I think even that isn't enough. That's not going to get 40,000 people to fly to Nebraska. What gets people to fly to Nebraska is that he also talks about his life and his values and how investing and his values relate to each other. And he'll answer, any question that anybody asks, he may not answer it directly, but he'll take a question. And just by doing that and by connecting in an annual meeting for a corporation, the fact that you can ask questions outside of what are the profits of the corporation and what are you doing in the future? Like investee questions, um, made him real. And it made, it made investing something that was well-rounded and personable, instead of confusing and far off amongst the greats, and I think that is his greatest contribution.
1: And I, I think he. There's one more reason why we all flock to, um, to Omaha in May. Why is that? <clears throat> is he's incredibly honest and self-deprecating mm. and humble, um, <clears throat> and unlike, I mean, I don't. I don't know if he can name another fund manager at his level, but people who are approaching his level, um, to be that honest and that forthcoming about his errors mm. is completely unique. I mean, and Buffett's been doing it in letters to his uh his investors for, for for I guess 60 years about now, where he he will emphasize his error. Oh, this is what I did wrong. This is where you're Your, you know, your brilliant fund manager just, you know, was dumber than a brick. Yeah. And, and (laughs) did this incredibly stupid thing, which has resulted in us not having more money. (laughs) Um, So all we, you know, we did well this year, we did 32%, but boy, we could have done so much, you know, that kind of thing. It It
0: helps a lot though when you (sighs) preface it with that, hey, we did well this year, but we could have done
1: better. (laughs) I know. It was only until recently that, that. The S and P five that that Warren had a down year compared to the S and P five hundred, mm-hmm. right? So he's always beaten the S and P five hundred or done uh, as well as um, over his entire history, which gives you a heck of a platform to, to admit mistakes. I, I will grant you that. Yeah, right. It's a lot easier to say, yeah, <laughs> I, I I struck out at the plate. You know, when you've got a three hundred and forty two percent batting average mm-hmm. compared to, you know, a terrible one. So, uh, granted, but still, he's done that from from pretty much from square one, with the um, the belief that people will stick with him for the long term, and that's what's really different about Warren. Yeah, totally. In terms of his investing, is that he's attracted people who are willing to ride through the bumps of fifty percent drops in the value of their portfolios, um, in the belief that in the long run, <clears throat> these returns will be phenomenal, and they have been. And so this is, this is, on. no one's done this. No one's ever done what he's done. Um, he gives an enormous amount of credit to other people, particularly to Ben Graham. But I'll be, I'll be, I'll be frank here. I mean, Graham was a great teacher and Graham introduced Warren to a very radical notion back in the early fifties that the stock market um, is often not a rational place. And when it's not being rational there are opportunities for a rational investor to take advantage of that. But you have to know what to look for. And Graham did a fantastic job of building a book called Security Analysis, which is still in hardback print today and used in classes um, all over the world, as the first book ever written that really analyzes a company, analyzes stocks from the point of view of being a business owner, and saying, okay, this is how you'd know if your business is really good and is gonna do well for the long term. And Buffett took that and just absolutely, I mean, Graham was a phenomenal investor. Don't get me wrong. He, he compounded money at 22% through the Depression and through World War II.
0: Wow. Through the yeah.
1: Depression? Yeah. I mean, he was a phenomenal investor. But his way of doing it was to massively diversify which is definitely not Buffett, Mm -hmm. right? He would own 100 to 200 stocks, and he would pick them based on his his calculations that he wrote about in security analysis to be um, companies which were selling in the Depression for less than their net cash on their books. In other words, you could buy... You mean their stock price
0: was selling... Their market cap and their stock price was selling for less than what they were worth on their books.
1: Yeah. Then, then the the net cash, like take away, take the cash of not even the value of the assets, just the cash and subtract everything you owe. And what you have left on many of these companies was worth more than they were selling for in the stock market. Mm. You could buy them. And if you could buy all of them, you could liquidate them and walk away with a profit tomorrow.
0: Yeah, that's a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel, isn't it?
1: Well, it is to a degree, unless you happen to be in the Depression and understand that management wasn't going to liquidate the company because they wanted to keep people employed at best and at worst because they wanted to keep getting a salary themselves regardless of what was better for the owners. And so you weren't going to get that net cash. And as a result, Graham would buy 100 to 200 of them because he didn't know which ones were going to ultimately be just bad businesses that went under. Um, and Buffett called this cigar butt investing. He basically laughed and said that Graham was picking up these cigar butts off the ground. They were f- virtually free. And uh, some of them had a, a, quite a lot of puffs left in them. Yeah. And um, on that basis, he did extremely well in a very, very tough stock market. Well,
0: and the other part of it is that he had money to buy stocks with in the Depression.
1: Well, he did, That's and that was because, quite
0: unusual. So he had a leg up well, just from that situation.
1: And then again, back to the whole wealth thing. It wasn't Graham's money. Well, right? D- it was did he a, have a, a large group, a fund of predominantly, if not exclusively, Jewish investors? Um, because remembering, there was a lot of uh, racial and religious discrimination back in those days, and um, and. Uh, there were country clubs that were just for sort of you know Presbyterians and there were country clubs that were just Jewish and there were you know hotels or, or camp resorts that were just Jewish and others. So um, Jewish wealthy Jewish people were excluded from investing with, you know were sort of the white the white shoe, they call them the sort of the white shoe firms of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they invested with Jewish, fund managers like Ben Graham, some of these people. did. Now, I, I don't know for sure the exact history, but I'm, uh, I know that this was such a strong, um, discriminatory policy that Graham refused to hire Warren Buffett, um, out of, as Buffett came out of his class at Columbia mm-hmm. because Buffett wasn't Jewish mm-hmm. and Graham couldn't have a non-Jewish person working for him at that time. A couple of years later, things started to shift in the middle fifties and he took Buffett on you know for a year anyway <laughs> and then and then Graham retired <laughs> Buffett was there for the last year of Graham's <laughs> Graham's uh mentorship and then he went back to Omaha with a little with pretty much nothing and decided to get started as an investor he really didn't know what he was going to do he was he went back and he worked in his dad's stockbroker firm for a little bit yeah um, it was, it's fascinating you know how how you you can look back at somebody's life and you can think, oh, it just flowed right along. But you you dig into it a bit and you start to realize the uncertainty that exists with God. everybody. Isn't
0: that the truth? I mean, I was just sitting with a friend the other day who, you know, has been through a few twists and turns and she just opened her own company. And we just sort of said to each other, like... God, nobody knows what the heck they're doing, do we? Like, we're supposed to be grown-ups, and we're all just winging it. Has it always been this way? Like, have grown-ups always been winging it? And we figured, yeah, like, everybody we know, all of our friends, we're all just winging it as best we can. And when you look back, it's like, oh, so then I opened my business, and it was very successful, and that was fantastic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it seems it seems obvious on hindsight what I did yeah, was so obvious exactly um, but it isn't that way uh, and, and actually, what we're talking about is a is a a crisis created by an enormous amount of freedom. i I doubt that people have been this free in the entire history of the world to pick their life and I, I'm reminded of a great friend named Chris Dunham who was on stage with me for years in these big events, things that we were going around the country doing. Mm-hmm. You know, And and Krish would talk about what it was like coming from India to to the United States and experiencing that freedom. I mean, Krish came from an upper class family in India where you were expected to be an engineer or a doctor. That was it. You weren't expected to be. You were going to be. That was all there was to it. And when he came here and realized that uh, uh, Americans take it for granted that you can choose what you want to be and just go be it. It was such a shock to him to have that level of freedom. And, but what, and it sounds great, right? If you're coming from a place where you get to, you have two choices in your life, pick one. Um, to a place where you have infinite choice, but infinite choice presents a lot of problems. You have, you have the responsibility for what you pick. Yeah, it's true.
0: I mean, what, imagine like, what if Buffett had not closed down the Buffett partnerships and decided to just start investing through the public company, Berkshire Hathaway. Like, what if he hadn't done that? What if he had just said, you know what? Everybody has a sort of investment partnership or investment fund, like the way I have it right now. I should just ride it out. I don't have any good ideas right now, but that's okay. I'm just going to stick it out. I don't want to give the money back. And in five years, this thing is going to pick up. That's what most people do. That's what most professionals do are doing right now. Who are Buffett acolytes who follow the Buffett method? They're not closing their funds the way Buffett did. Some of them are, right. <laughs> but some of them are not. <laughs> and uh, right. and what if he had just done that? Like, I wonder if we would even know about him. I really do. Well,
1: take it one step further. And what if he did what what? Oh. Uh, uh, Gosh, the guy that started Tiger Funds, Julian Robertson. Okay. What if he did what Julian did in 1999? You know, the, the, he had compounded money at 30% plus for his clients for 20 years. Phenomenal investor. And he, he just got, I don't understand where the markets go. I don't understand the markets anymore. They're crazy mm-hmm. in 1999. Mm-hmm. So he, sh- he shut the fund. People were taking their money out of his fund left and right. So he just said, uh, the heck with it. And he shut it down. And he didn't come back, and I think he's come back recently and, and managed money, but he basically had enough money to just run it on his own, and Buffett could as well. He didn't have to buy Berkshire Hathaway, a public company. He could have just kept his own money, and this is what a lot of wealthy yeah, people do. Yeah. This is, you know, They just invest their own, and for their family, and run a family fund, mm-hmm. and you don't hear about mm-hmm.
0: them. Exactly.
1: But he didn't do that, and as a result, we get the benefit of it you know, that he's reporting to a public audience every year since 1960s about about this birthday, this this 89th birthday. The first yeah. thing that occurs to me is, you know, what, is, what does Buffett think about how to live a great life? Because I think he's lived a great life. Do you know what he says about that by any chance? No. Do you have a quote in mind? I don't have a quote, but I do know this. He tells us to college students when they come and visit, um, that you want to live your life so that whatever you do could appear on the front page of the newspaper.
0: Mm, yes. I Just think about that. Just live it like it's yeah. like
1: the front page of the newspaper is going to be what you're doing in your life. Number one. And number two, remember that character and a reputation take a long time to build mm and can be destroyed in five minutes. Mm -hmm. And those two things are, are enormously wise that for us to remember, I think they're, you know, looking, looking at it now from where I'm standing, you look back and, and I can see that it's so important. Like the things that come to you because you stand firm with your character, that's the quality of your character that matters in the long run, not whether you're successful at any given moment, but how you're playing the game, because it just seems like opportunity comes to people who have played the game well, right? I mean, they've just, just been strong with character and, and they're not going to lie. They're going to have integrity. Um, they're going to do the right thing, even if nobody knows it. And for, and those people are sought out, they're sought after eventually. I think you win. Yeah. I think eventually
0: is the key word.
1: And I'll it's... tell you, I'll tell you what win means. I mean, I think your grandfather, you know, my dad had enormous integrity. I mean, he, oh, absolutely. He, I, he never lied about anything in his life and never hid from, you know, the, the, the problem that he might've created or whatever. He was so moral and so honest and, mm-hmm. and tried to just knock into my head to not rationalize, you know, mistakes i'd made and and um and just accept responsibility for them and it's it's a hard lesson i i'm working on it you know still to this day and he just had it he just definitely had it um yeah, and that's completely. a legacy for you right honey i mean that's yeah. something you get just coming down the pipe
0: yeah. He, For being uh, born he isn't into this family. So you didn't get a lot
1: of money, but you got a really good <laughs> lesson in integrity and you, you live that very, very well. I'm very proud of you.
0: Oh, thank you. It's, I mean, everything you said about what Buffett says is something that I think of often, um, about reputation and about making sure that anything I do would end up on the front page of the wall street journal and I'd have to be okay with it. And, but you're right. I I, like connecting it to grandpa is very sweet because that's exactly how he lived. And he, I I mean, it, it sounds kind of bad to say it like this, but I think you would agree. He was not successful in a sort of outward, like worldly way. I think he was actually kind of unhappy with his work and he was a bookkeeper for what, like 40 years or something.
1: Yeah. And I don't was, think he liked it very much. No, I don't think he liked it very much. And but yet the reason he, he did it was to break out of it. What? He just couldn't find a way to break out of it because, you know, he's a, he's a, a kid that grew up in the depression. He f- uh, flew for the Marine Corps in World War II. He, and he, he just tucked so much inside and wouldn't talk about it, you know? Yeah. And, and the most important thing to Which is to very him,
0: common for people who went through that war.
1: Yeah, it really is. And the most important thing for him was to be there for his family. Yeah. Like, and, and to, and to make sure that there was, you know, food on the table. And in a steady he put, way.
0: Like he was all about way. steadiness.
1: Yeah, exactly. He was not going to take a risk yeah. uh, and lose a good steady paycheck, even if it wasn't much. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely lower middle class at best. And he wasn't going to pass that up to go for more, um, because he'd seen people try to do that mm-hmm. and fail mm-hmm. in the, in the, and it just, he just didn't have the confidence or the, I don't know, maybe it's not even confidence. It's the, the hubris to just go for it. Right. Just, okay. I just can do anything. Yeah. He didn't feel like that. He had seen that uh, no, I can't. I I know what can happen when.
0: And I think that kind of drove you crazy when you were younger. But I think
1: it was hard. I think now because you your grandmother appreciate. was the exact yeah. <laughs> opposite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> your, your grandmother came from a family uh, from Arkansas. She was born in Oklahoma, Muskogee, Oklahoma, and they got blown around in the Depression. It ended up in Oregon, and my grandfather, your great grandfather, and grandmother just figured out how to build brick houses in the depression using guys from the labor union guys, you know, lending them the land, borrowing the lumber, building the house, taking a note on it, building the next one with no jobs at all. They just created their own world and gladly went back to work for the railroad and back into the union um, when you know World War II picked up and and they started getting hired again, they just dropped the entrepreneur life immediately and went <laughs> right back to work for a good company, because it's scary to hang on there by your teeth. But my mom saw that growing up and didn't understand the scary part because she was a kid. She just saw the the entrepreneurial side of it, so she was she was an entrepreneur all the way and. Oh, man, that was a tough combination right there. Yeah,
0: for but, sure. And I think that that explains part of his attachment to being the guy who at least would get food on the table and make sure that you guys had a house and were okay. Because she was not like that.
1: <laughs> no, she was not like
0: that. <laughs> um, and he, interestingly, and I didn't find this out until I was older um i don't know like in my 20s he had once taken a risk i think it was right when you were born dad or maybe it was right after you were born he wanted to work for the fbi and somehow i i don't know if i ever asked him how that got into his head but somehow that got into his head he thought it would be really interesting and he was willing to move to dc and work for the fbi and this was like a dream of his and tell me what things I'm getting wrong. This is what I remember. And um, and at that time, in order to be an FBI agent, you had to have a law degree. So And he had not been to college. And yet you could go get a law degree at that time without having an undergrad degree. So it was like a professional school degree. And so he started going at night. And I remember him telling me that he had this screaming baby at home and his wife didn't know what to do. And he was working all day. And then he would go to these classes at night. And it was just really hard. And I was like, I can't even imagine doing that. I mean, Yeah, talk about hard. Talk about a risk of all the times like that is maybe when you have a new baby that maybe isn't the best time to go and do that. But I think he just (laughs) felt like this could be the future of his family. And then I think you know, he just said to me anyway, he said, it just was so hard. I I just stopped after. I just, you know, dropped out of school basically and went back to just working. And that yep. was it. That was the end of his dream of being a lawyer. I don't think he really wanted to practice law, but his dream of being an FBI agent. And it would have been a yep. completely... Different life if he had. Well,
1: you didn't know this one little thing about him What's then, that? and that was he would he had worked for the FBI.
0: Yeah, that's right, in D.C. Right
1: when he was eighteen. Yeah, he went to work as a clerk for the FBI. Oh, so
0: that's how he so got. So he'd B. already
1: yeah. been in what, and he was in Washington D.C. on December seventh, nineteen forty-one. Oh. And immediately uh, went into the service. Oh, I didn't
0: know. The next I didn't day. Connect that. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah, the next day, and. Uh, Wow. When he came back from, I mean, he was in the service from 1941. He got out, he actually flew, uh, in support of Chiang Kai-shek after, after, uh, World War II, they kept him in for another year. And, uh, and he flew all over Ch- mm-hmm. you know, all over China, yeah. just, I mean, just following roads and hoping you land on yeah. the right side of the army. Yeah. And, um, he got back in 1946, immediately got married, immediately had children. Mm-hmm. Not, well, not immediately, I guess tried to have children for a couple of years and then got me and then, um, tried to build this life. And you're right. It's like, you think about how he put his dream away to be sure that he could, you know, be there for the, for the family. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was a great dad in that mm-hmm. regard. I mean, there for the, you know, playing baseball with us and just doing everything he could to support the family. And living that life of integrity and putting aside his dreams for it. Yeah. And what it created in me was this, this burning desire to do more. And I I started really kind of cooking after I got back from Vietnam and, and went to work on the river. I just pushed all that down. I just got, you know, I basically dropped out for a bunch of time and, and, um, but it came back. It came back in the form of going to work. Like this desire to, to to have more, oh. this desire to not be limited by money mm. came back really strong. I it was buried deep for about you know ten years after Vietnam, but um, it came back in the form of this opportunity to go to work for an investor as an apprentice, and that apprenticeship resulted in me stepping out and going on my own to start building up this, um, the wealth that I wanted. And I made myself a promise in 1980. I would absolutely do this no matter what. I would just burn the bridges and ironically, here comes you. And now I'm in the same (laughs) boat as my dad, (laughs) right? Working my tail off to try to support a family and and make this happen, right? And make this thing happen. And I I just had better luck, I guess. I don't know. I guess that or I was more stubborn or something. I had more of my mom in me and I didn't quit. Yeah. I didn't quit. And I got huge support. I have to say it was
0: I think I mean, I don't want to take anything away from you, but I, I really just from observing so many people be successful or not successful, I think luck has such a huge part to play and being ready for those opportunities when they come. And I think that's something you're really good at is being ready for opportunity.
1: And I think luck, honestly, honey, I think luck is, there's a little bit of the, there's a, at least this is what Dr. Salk told me. Dr. Jonas Salk told me this cause he, I worked with him closely for a little while And he very strongly believed that when you make a full commitment to something, as in burn the bridges, don't look back, you know, you're not looking back any more than Warren Buffett was looking back when he started trying to go out and raise money for the first Buffett partnership. It was a burn the bridges scenario. He's going to do this or, or else. And that's kind of what Dr. Salk wanted me to understand is that he developed a Salk polio vaccine to save the lives of millions of people because he was totally and completely committed to it. He made himself a promise. He would find the answer to this thing. And he encouraged me to do that same thing. And I think that's the difference between me and my dad is that my dad was committed to be there for the family. 100%. That was his burn the bridges commitment. Mine Mm -hmm. was To do this, make this money, become wealthy. And so your mom carried, you know, a lot of the burden of that, actually. I mean, she, Mm -hmm. I was working all the time to break through, which is, I don't know, you know, maybe it's the wrong thing, but here we are. (laughs) You know, (laughs) here we are. And um, if you've read our book, Invested, you know that, you know, that. Me being gone all the time, and it resulted ultimately in, in in what it results in, which is a divorce, and that hurts your ki- your children. And Danielle, you you were hurt by it, I know. So, well, and the the the
0: beautiful thing is kind of the full circle that we've made together. But since we're talking about Grandpa today, also just with him too and his his law school and what he wanted to do with his life when I was in law school, he, I didn't really think about it too much because he hadn't really talked about it very much, him going to law school. But I remember him just sort of saying to me, like, this is really a big deal. Like, this is, this is really pretty amazing that you're in law school. (laughs) And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. And that's when we ended up talking about his experience. um, Because like you said, he didn't really talk about these things. So we had just never, it it hadn't come up and it came up. (laughs) Um, so that was the only time we really got to talk about it. And then, and now I'm going to cry about him, but when he was dying, I had just graduated and I was studying for the bar and I remember I came in to see him and I said, I graduated and he was, he had been out of it for a while. So I said, I graduated and I'm studying for the bar and he just sort of grabbed my hand and he was very out of it, but he knew who I was and he grabbed my hand and he just said, that's good. That's good. Wow. And it was, just, I'll never forget
1: that. I didn't, I, you've never told me that. Jeez.
0: And so then, and then he passed away and I took the bar, I don't know, a couple months later. And I just like thought about him so much. And then when I passed and I don't know, he's just, he was so much in my thoughts around that. Sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) He was a wonderful grandpa and I just miss him. I always cry when I talk about him because I miss him a lot. And uh, yeah, it was just like such a, I felt like I was doing that for him a little bit. I didn't mean to, I never, I didn't intend to. But then when, when he shared that with me, it became a little bit for him.
1: I'll tell you. And now
0: I do this a little bit for you. Like it's it's yeah. kind of amazing.
1: It's so important that you guys that we honor the people who mentor us who've had this kind of impact on our lives. You know, we try to honor them while they're alive so that they know how much we appreciate them. And I, I hope you're doing that for your parents and and you know, you really let them know while you have a chance that how much it means to you what they've done, what they've sacrificed to make your life possible. And I th- I feel that same obligation to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and uh, who've yeah. preceded, you know, my teacher and in, in teaching us and who are responsible now in our family for generational wealth. And the fact that I can yeah. do this with my daughter, who's incredible and, you know, I a, do
0: want to say that a lot of people don't have great relationships with their parents or the people they grew up with. Mm. And that's okay, too. You know, like this is something <laughs> I just did a whole course on. And so it's like very close to my heart, mm. which we'll be talking about a lot more, not to like be promotion-y. Um, but it's just I feel like it's something that's so important. And uh, and and whether or not we have a good relationship with our parents around money stuff we can still I I don't know I feel like we can still be grateful for those parts that got us to where we are today and that like you don't you don't have you didn't always have the best relationship with your dad because you were different and you were trying to behave differently and you had different goals in your life than he did yeah and 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 at the same time like being so grateful to him for everything he gave you. Those things, those two things can exist at the same time. And I just think that's important to say, because we don't all have great family relationships. That's
1: true. It's true. It's, 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 it's super important you guys that we, uh, we take the best we can from the previous generations. Take the best, you know, take the best from Warren, take the best from Charlie, take the best from your family. And then be the best you can be for the next generation. Yeah, Learn your exactly. lessons. I mean, man, I have exactly. not been the best dad in the planet, right? And you gotta you gotta be a bit humble. You have to be willing to listen to uh to the people you love and listen to them when they're telling you where the injuries are and try your best to just accept it and and try to love and 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 heal the wounds. And Danielle and I have done pretty good at that, I think.
0: We've done real good at that. Yeah,
1: I think so too, honey. So
0: I wanted to, to read a whole section that Munger wrote about Warren Buffett on this episode, but I think we should move that to next week and (laughs) (laughs) lest we go too long here in
1: our in our certain our our way we've sort of slid off into territory we've never been much into before so um
0: i cried i've never cried on the podcast before
1: if you don't enjoy us tearing up we apologize we'll get back to business next week (laughs) meanwhile I just want to say that I love my daughter so much and I think you're fantastic. And
0: it's just such a, it's a joy
1: for us to do this podcast together. At least I I love doing it. And I, I hope you guys enjoy it as much as we do. Um, So until next time.
0: We'll be back with thoughts on old age from Charlie Munger. (laughs) Time to go play. (laughs) See ya. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.
1: Hi guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for our podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice Because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.